Y'all can talk about all these viruses, and that's good, but you can't forget the main one. It's plaguing us, bro. Down with the colonial virus. 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 Colonial virus is why I can't live. Can't live. Colonial virus is why I can't breathe. Colonial virus, yo, that thing gotta go. You gotta go. We don't wanna have to deal with this virus no more. Down with the colonial virus. 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 Uhuru. Welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Uwambi Tongu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. Today we want to talk about the Kentucky Grand Jury decision to not indict any police for the murder of 26-year-old Breonna Taylor in Louisville. We have with us on the show a defense attorney, Jamal Kersey, and a teacher and activist, Robert White who served as a juror on the Black People's Grand Jury that indicted Darren Wilson in the murder of Mike Brown in St. Louis. For six months, Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron slow-walked the case of the police murder of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, on March 13th, stating that the public pressure would not force his hand. By public pressure, he meant the demands from the African community. In late September, he finally presented the case to the grand jury. On September 23rd, a Jefferson County grand jury decided not to charge the cops for the murder of Breonna Taylor. The grand jury did, however, support a charge. Adding insult to injury, the grand jury indicted Officer Brett Hankinson with three counts of wanton endangerment for the shots that missed Breonna and went into a white neighbor's home. The African community has responded in continued resistance and in support of Breonna Taylor. On October 3rd, rap star Megan Thee Stallion performed the political version of her track Savage on Saturday Night Live that featured a quote from Malcolm X stating that the most disrespected person is a black woman in another sample where activist Tamika Mallory called Cameron a sellout Negro. Let's take a listen.
Daniel Cameron is no different than the sellout Negroes that sold our people into slavery by statute. We need to protect our black women and love our black women. Because at the end of the day, we need our black women. We need to protect our black men and stand up for our black men. Because at the end of the day, we tired of seeing hashtags of our black men. I'm savage, classy, bougie, ratchet, yeah. sassy, moody, nasty, yeah. hacking, stupid, what's happening, what's happening, I'm a savage, yeah. classy, Cameron had responded on the conservative media circuit with indignation and self-pity. The fact that someone would get on national television uh, and make disparaging comments about me because I'm simply trying to do my job uh, is disgusting. The fact that a celebrity uh, that I've never met before wants to make those sorts of statements, uh, they don't hurt me, but what it does, it exposes the type of intolerance uh, that people uh, and the hypocrisy, because obviously people preach about being tolerant you mm -hmm. see a lot of that from the left about being tolerant, uh, but what you saw there is inconsistent with tolerance. In fact, it's, uh, it's her espousing intolerance uh, because I've start decided to stand up for truth and justice. The African working class has not responded to the colonial judicial system as some might expect. Africans have been just as critical of the Democratic Party vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris for her record as district attorney and Attorney General of California, as they have been of Daniel Cameron. Today, we will discuss the function of grand juries in the so-called criminal justice system, the working class African response to the colonial court system in the U.S., and contrast the U.S. colonial system to a model of Black self-government. Our first guest is Jamal Kersey, the head of the Kersey Law Firm for over 10 years, Jamal has defended working-class people in a wide variety of issues, from criminal cases to his defense of people facing deportation. Jamal is also a disc jockey and a community college professor of legal studies. Jamal, what happened with the grand jury in Louisville? How did they manage to indict none of these cops in the death of Breonna Taylor? Uh, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on your show. Uh, to answer the question in terms of why there were no indictments as it relate to any charges related to homicide is, um, you know, just to kind of explain what grand juries are, um, they are uh, uh, provided for in the Constitution that in order for someone to um, be accused of a felony or held to answer charges, there must be evidence presented in order to show that there's been a crime committed and that the person accused was reasonably the person who uh, committed the crime. Um, but the, the prosecutor has all the control in terms of 
the charges that are ultimately presented in front of the grand jury. So what we know is that um, there were indictments for uh, reckless endangerment for, like you said, um, the firing of, of shots into another neighboring apartment. But in terms of any charges related to homicide, that doesn't appear to have ever been presented to the grand jury such that they could come back with indictments on anything related to homicide. Jamal, digging a little deeper, recording suggests that Cameron intentionally led the grand jury towards a non-indictment. Based on your analysis of the news reports, how did he pull this off? So essentially, it, it appears the, the decision was made that the officers were justified in their use of force because they identified themselves as officers and then came under fire. Um, and there's, there's problems with that in that we know there is at least um, evidence in the form of uh, neighbors indicating that they never heard anything related to officers announcing themselves. And, and, and that becomes very important because if, they're, if the prosecutors are hanging, themse- hanging their hats on the, the, the alleged fact that the officers identified themselves as officers, but yet we hear neighbors saying that they never heard any identification, then that's, that's a question of fact that, that really should uh, go in front of a jury, not only you know in the in the form of a grand jury, but ultimately, um, if these officers were held to answer for trial, um, that it should go there. But again, if if the prosecutor you know at the top level decides you know on his own that the officers were justified, then the grand jury never gets a chance to hear um, or, or or decide whether um, any form of homicide, any degree of homicide, um, is justified. So. You mentioned warrants. It seems like the problem here is not just the grand jury, but it's also these no-knock warrants. Can you explain that issue? So in this particular case, there were a number of issues that raised some serious concerns in terms of not only the, um, the, the signing off of the warrant um, in and of itself, but then also the execution of the warrant. Um, in order to justify a no-knock warrant, um, you know, just looking at the Fourth Amendment and uh, the Constitution indicating that we all have, as citizens, the right to be safe and secure in our homes, that police are not allowed to, you know, unconstitutionally or unjustifiably um, invade the home. And so in this situation where, you know, a a no-knock warrant is signed off on, there has to be um, specific language indicating the, the need for such a warrant. And it doesn't appear that there was any sort of um, underlying facts justifying this type of warrant. In fact, there's there's a lot of shoddy information in terms of the fact that uh, Mr. Glover um, wasn't living at Ms. Taylor's home. Um, he, he was said to have been receiving packages there. Um, and that was based on a detective claiming to have consulted with the postal inspector uh, confirming that Glover had been receiving packages at Taylor's address. Interestingly enough, there are no postal inspectors that confirm that that information was true. So, you know, it, it, it very may, it, it may very well be that that is false, that that was not true. Um, the other uh, alarming issue is the fact that Jamarcus Glover was already in custody by the time the police related the home. So if they were looking for uh, Mr. Glover, he was already in custody. So they didn't have any need to go into that home, especially in the manner in which they carried it out. Um, the other thing is that, again, 
there, there's evidence in, in terms of these neighbors coming out and saying, listen, if we didn't hear any police announce themselves, what we understand is that they knocked for 30 to 45 seconds and they entered the home. And so, and that, and that obviously led to Mr. Walker, who, who was in fact a licensed gun open, gun owner, um, defending his house because he, you know, not knowing whether these were criminals or officers or, or whomever opened fire. And so, um, the, there are, again, in, in, in the acquiring of the warrant, it's in and of itself. There, there's, it's very problematic in that the, the police use very generic, uh, non-specific language in order to justify um, the the use of a no-knock warrant, and then again, the execution of a warrant was completely problematic. the The warrant was their justification for entering the home in the in, in the manner in which they did. And what they what they ultimately say is, you know, in cases where we have um, alleged drug trafficking or drug sales, um, there's an inherent danger in that these people are are violent and will react violently towards law enforcement and the exigent circumstance in terms of their ability to flush away evidence. But you have to actually be specific in terms of why um, officers would be um, or, or, or should be in fear of their safety as a result of the execution of the warrant and why this particular individual would be more inclined to you know, flush or destroy evidence, not just a blanket statement, and so the and that's where we have this this great problem is that we have um, you know shoddy or questionable facts, which were the basis for the um, signing off on the warrant, and then the ultimate execution of the warrant. You know, if 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 the warrant is problematic in and of itself, that's a problem. But then when they actually execute the warrant and don't do what they're supposed to do in terms of announcing themselves as law enforcement, then, you know, this is really a, a, a natural and or foreseeable consequence. And it's, and, it's a, and it's such a tragedy that because of, it, you know, it, it appears in terms of the issuing of the warrant and the execution of the warrant, then now uh, Ms. Taylor has lost her life. That's it's, it's, it's quite sad. No-knock warrants are nothing new. In 1963, the Supreme Court set a precedent in favor of forcible police entries involving narcotics out of concern that evidence could be destroyed. This was part of the beginning of a so-called war on drugs, a U.S. counterinsurgency program whose real target was the emerging black revolution. Gil Scott Heron released this song in 1972. No Knock, the law in particular, was allegedly... Um legislated for black people rather than, you know, for their destruction. And it means simply that authorities and members of uh, the police force no longer have to knock on your door before entering. They can now knock your door down. It's no knock. You explained it to me, I must admit, but just for the record, you were talking... Long rap about no knock being legislated for the people you've always hated in this hellhole that you, we, call home. No knock, the man will say, to keep that man from beating his wife. No knock, the man will say, to protect people from themselves. No knocking head, rocking, enter, shocking, shooting, cussing, killing, crying, lying, and being white. No knock. No knocks on my brother Fred Hampton, bullet holes all over. 
over the place. No knock till my brother Michael Harrison jammed a shotgun against his skull. For my protection, who's gonna protect me from you? The likes of you, the nerve of you, to talk that face to face, your tomato face, deadpan, your deadpan, deadening another freedom plan. No knocking, head rocking, into shocking, shooting, cussing, killing, crying, lying, and being white. But if you're wise, no knocker, you'll tell your no knocking lackeys, ha, no knock on my brother's heads, no knock on my sister's heads, no knock on my brother's heads, no knock on my sister's heads, and double lock your door, because soon someone may be no knocking, ha, ha, for you. Gil Scott Heron, 1972. Jamal, you stated that all of us should have a right to safety in our own homes. Yet the police were able to invade the home to um, to murder Breonna Taylor. And, you know, as black people, you know, when we see something like this happening. We understand that it happens a lot of times. Now, if the tables were turned, um, what do you think would have gone down? Would the case of the working class black person normally go to the grand jury? I've heard a term that says that prosecutors can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. What do they mean by that? First of all, in terms of, uh, of murder, uh, murder has, you know, specific uh, definition under the law, um, and I and I do believe ultimately, if the if the case were to go to trial, if these officers were charged with murder, um, there's there's a possibility that, um, you know, they would be acquitted because of you know they they were returning fire in, in order to protect themselves, um, and that's and that's a problem in and of itself because that ends up being a byproduct of a broken system that would allow these sorts of, of warrants to be not only applied for, um, signed off on, and ultimately executed um, because there, there really is no, there's no teeth in terms of um, discipline towards officers who um, execute warrants in, in violation of people's uh, constitutional rights. Ultimately, even you know, in this situation, if, if drugs were to have been found, um, they wouldn't even have been excluded uh, they likely would not have been excluded uh, because the Supreme Court has, you know, ultimately indicated, well, we're not going to go that far as to, you know, necessarily throw out the drugs because um, the the officers have violated the law in this sense. What they would say is that, you know, a person's remedy would be to sue the government or we should allow law enforcement to essentially police themselves and, and enact their own uh, disciplinary measures, which we, you know, which we never see. So that's the, the issue in terms of, um, you know, murder charges and how that, you know, ultimately would have would have played out. But in terms of if this were, you know, a, a, a black working class man who had shot or, you know, black men who had shot, I think um, there there would have been a swift move to ultimately either simply file charges um, or they would have moved to indict indict those individuals and they would have been able to do so quite easily as you referred to the uh, prosecutor's ability to indict a ham sandwich. And ultimately, um, it's, a, it's a probable cause standard. So if there's reason to believe that a crime has been committed and the person accused is the one who committed the crime, um, it, it is quite easy for a prosecutor to have someone indicted. And again, if, if in, this, in this, you know, based on these facts that we do know, if the attorney general had decided to put those, put any sort of uh, offenses relating to uh, homicide before a grand jury, he undoubtedly would have gotten indictments. 
Yeah, I wanted to ask you, Jamal, have you had any cases that have went to a grand jury? I have, yes. Um, but it, you know, as you mentioned, I'm in San Diego, uh, practice in San Diego County. On the state side, grand juries are extremely rare. Um, generally speaking, the, prob- the probable cause hearings are in front of a judge versus, you know, a grand jury, which, you know, varying from state to state, it's usually between 16 to 23 people. Um, on the federal side, that's where you see uh, grand juries should the the defense elect to have their case uh, brought before a grand jury. That's where we would see grand juries. But on the state side, we don't really see that in, in California. The case that you said had went to the grand jury. What were the results and did it go to trial? So there have been numerous um, um, ranging from uh, issues relating to immigration, you know, uh, illegally entering the United States to uh, major drug crimes. And, and ultimately, all of those, um, I, I haven't had a case where there hasn't been an indictment return. And, um, and, and really, you know, when it comes to the indictment, the defense attorney is completely removed from the process as, as far as grand juries go. The prosecutor basically plays the role uh, of the prosecuting attorney and the defense attorney in their, in their questioning. Uh, but yeah, I mean, any, anything, um, it, it, it'd be a very rare situation in which a prosecutor couldn't get an indictment returned in a grand jury. Thanks for that, Jamal. Activists are not just upset with Republican district attorneys. They are equally critical of the Democratic vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris for her years as a prosecutor in California, locking up African people and fighting to keep the death penalty. You have functioned inside the legal system for 12 years. Do you see African people working inside the legal system becoming disillusioned? Yes, unfortunately, I do. And um, it actually happened to me as well. I went into the legal profession in part uh, based on uh, taking Blacks in the justice system at San Diego State. I was an Africana studies minor, and I was seeing how over the years, so many atrocities had been committed against my people and, and they were legally justified. And I thought to myself, how could this you know, how could this happen? How can we say we're a nation of laws and yet my people um, have been exploited time and again and, and it ends up being legal? Um, and you, you go into the law wanting to, to make change. And I, you know, through taking various roads, ended up in the, the local prosecutor's office. And ultimately what you see, you know, you, you go in thinking that you can you know, go in and, and enact change, but it is just such a big wave. It's a, it's a huge uh, systemic wave that you eventually realize that it is too big for you or even the other, um, you know, black colleagues collectively to overcome. And this is why um, it's going to require a complete uh, dismantling and overhauling of the system in order for uh, for us to to truly um, receive justice um, on the part of the criminal justice system. From what you've seen, what impact has the movement against police brutality made on the legal community? I've seen a a raising of awareness uh, from people who who otherwise, you know, have the luxury of being able to tune out the issues that have been going on. Um, and, and that's been refreshing. 
um, you know, things that black people have been aware of for uh, decades, if not centuries, in terms of the injustices. It is nice to see, you know, recognition from uh, from our white and non-black uh, counterparts, you know, recognizing what's been going on. Uh, but ultimately, you know, unfortunately, these things are going to continue to perpetuate themselves because, um, again, like I said, they're, they're, it is necessary that we have a complete overhaul of the system. When we think about, uh, you know, Blacks' uh, initial experience in this country and the, the centuries of, of dehumanization of our people and they're not having been in equal um, or efforts in excess to restore us as a people, um, this is this is what you get as a result, and um, and that is unfortunate, and and that's the uncomfortable truth that people don't want to uh, neither uh, confront or discuss or accept, and uh, and again, you know, unless and until we have a complete uh, overhaul dismantling of the system and and rebuilding, um, then unfortunately these things are going to happen time and time again. Yeah, who absolutely agree with you. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are defense attorney and professor Jamal Kersey, and our second guest is Robert White. A resident of St. Louis, Robert was raised in Brooklyn, Illinois. America's first Black incorporated town, just two miles north of East St. Louis. Robert White is a grassroots Black power activist with a history of work and education. Mobilized by the murder of Mike Brown in 2014, Robert served as a juror in the Black People's Grand Jury of Darren Wilson. Robert, many people in the news are comparing the failure of the grand jury to indict the police in the killing of Breonna Taylor to the lack of indictments in the 2014 police murders of Eric Garner in New York, Tamir Rice in Ohio, and Mike Brown in Ferguson. You were a longtime teacher and activist in the St. Louis area. When the grand jury refused to indict Darren Wilson of the murder of Mike Brown, an independent, community-run Black people's grand jury was convened. You served as a juror on that body. Why did you think it was necessary to convene a grand jury that was run for and by Black people in St. Louis? Uhuru, and thank you for that uh, question. I pray that you all are well. Um, first and foremost, it's important to understand that the African community in St. Louis has a historically rich history of culture, but not just culture, uh, resistance towards the state and other oppressive forces in, in, in the St. Louis area. So for uh, this convening to be held in St. Louis, it was really an exercise and self-determination and self-governance. Uh, I would like to think it was also a stretch of the imagination for people, not just in the St. Louis metro area, but people around the world to really think about the possibilities of what could be, right? Uh, what it would look like to have a legitimate, legitimized uh, process where we you know, have practical applications separate of the state and, and to really validate the need for power. So uh, the beauty about being one of the jurors was the fact that the jury was comprised of, you know, individuals from everyday working class folks from different religious, ideological and even political uh, practices and stances. But that have a vested interest, not just in African people in St. Louis, but African people throughout the diaspora. Thanks for that. Now, Robert, can you tell us how the black people's grand jury was conducted? 
So absolutely. So what I can recall from the experiences was that it was very organized and it was very uh, structured. Um, everyone from the organizers of the event to the jurors to the people uh, that were in the audience really took it uh, serious. It had a really uh, scientific and strategic flow to it. Uh, one of the things that I was most impressed with was, and this was my first time coming in encounter with any type of a grand jury. So, but it was very, uh, it had protocols in place to make sure that everyone was safe uh, and, uh, and to make sure that things ran smoothly. Uh, and, you know, despite this being a formal procedure that we took very seriously, one of the things that I can recall uh, would be a contrast to going into, you know, the state and having to go through that grand jury process was everyone was really uh, humble and down to earth and, and very friendly, uh, you know, and, and made it plain. Right. They put things in plain, plain English. So it was definitely a process that I was glad to be a part of. So can you tell us where was it held? Yeah, so the event was held at a local concert and entertainment venue uh, frequented by many folks in the St. Louis uh, area called the um, Ambassador. So there were a lot of people in attendance? Yeah, there was a decent crowd that came out uh, in support of, of this process. Also, let me ask you some questions about the legal proceedings. What evidence was presented? Also, were you given specific legal instructions? And how many days did it take for the evidence to be presented? Yeah, so great question. So as it relates to the evidence that was presented, uh, the evidence presented was really testimony from uh, one of the most sticking things, in my opinion, was the testimony of a former police officer that has uh, exposed police corruption uh, in the local uh, police uh, system. And basically, he kind of shared with 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 us, everyone in attendance, how the system is set up uh, in terms of reporting and filing, uh, how the system is essentially set up to release the police officer of any type of wrongdoing. Here's a clip of former police officer Glenn Rogers testimony. People need to understand how the police report process works in St. Louis County because it's similar all over the country. A full police report is very critical that you understand the whole system is designed to clear the police officer. And let me tell you how it works all over the country. For example, if you're a police officer and you get involved in a situation, you're a regular officer, you turn in your report and your report is to be done that day. If it's not done that day, at least the critical elements of time, date, who, what, when, where, and why is sketched so they don't have to pay you overtime and you can come back and complete it the next day. But let me tell you how it works. You, the responding officer, gets involved in the situation. You complete your report and you turn in your report to your sergeant. Your sergeant's job is to review your report for errors and omissions and incorrect things. So, for example, officer, you comes in and you turn in your report to Sergeant me. I say, uh, for, say, for example, you forgot to read the Miranda rights. Everybody's familiar with that. So I will say to you, officer, you, I'm, I'm sure that you uh, gave him his Miranda rights, didn't you? But you forgot to put it in the report. And you ring, it rings a bell. You may have clearly forgotten. You say, yeah, that's right. Just give me that back and I'll get it taken care of. No big thing. You give it back. You give your amended report. 
They'll give you your police report with scratches and red marks on it all over until it is complying to standards. So the sergeant looks at it and the sergeant um, says, well, this is okay. He submits it to the lieutenant. That's why you don't see most high-ranking officers on the street. Most of their job is reading police reports. And the chief is dealing with politics. So, so the lieutenant looks at it. He's been there longer than the sergeant. That's why he's a lieutenant, normally. And so he says, with his deeper critique and more experience with the courts, he says, well, what, I see there was a juvenile sitting there in the, in the, in the uh, booking room. He tells the sergeant, you need to get this back to the officer because he needs to do something about this part of the report. You can't have a juvenile sitting there in there with the adults. So he kicks it back. Sergeant U gets it, says, oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, let me go ahead and let me straighten that out. Is this lying or is it conforming to police protocol? Now... The captain gets an ultimately assistant chief, and finally the chief puts his John Henry on it, and it gets approved as a closed report, where no more amendments are made to that report. Nothing else can be added to that report. Anything else after that has to be submitted in the form of a supplement to the original report. For example, the person that you were dealing with, his parents come to the station the next day, and they say, hey, look, I've got to tell you such and such and such, and it might be critical to the case or whatever. So it's significant enough that you have to do a supplement to that original report, and a lot of times it's listed as an S. Same report number with an S. One of the questions I had about this Michael Brown case was, there's a lot of talk about the original reports, but I'm more concerned about the supplemental reports of all of these cops that responded to the scene. Mm -hmm. Because these cops that responded to the scene, I think that's why they had to have it all, you know, took so much time to get it to comply. Because at that point, you've got a lot of different people. And you can't have contradictions if you understand how it works. In addition to, you know, uh, the, the police, former police officer uh, presenting evidence, there was firsthand witness accounts of, of I could think it was Mike Brown's uncle who was actually on the scene uh, when Mike Brown was murdered. Let's listen to this clip of Mike Brown's uncle testifying at the Black People's Grand Jury in St. Louis in 2015. He did not do like police work at all. And he knew it and all the police knew it. And they just doubling back around. We got him on camera saying the chief, he didn't know nothing about a robbery. But now uh, he had got a call about a robbery and hit my nephew for the description. So which one is it? So that right there alone was enough to take it to trial. And I could go on and on about a hundred more things. The 40 witnesses, 60 witnesses, but they didn't call me. I was in the top 10 people up there, but I didn't see what happened when it happened. But I was up there like right after it happened. But the people that was there when it happened, Mr. McCullough, he did not ask them questions about, okay, what happened? He asked them about what happened before and what happened earlier or after or what happened with their personal lives. 
trying to discredit them. But the other 45 to 50 people that didn't see nothing, he put on the stand and say, okay, what happened? They didn't know, but the people that did know, you didn't want to talk about that that happened. You want to talk about everything else to them, like Dorian Wilson. You want to talk about the store robbery, his past, what type of person he is. But you don't want to talk about what happened, though. First you want to discredit them, then you want to ask them what happened. But then you want to ask everybody who didn't see it, just heard about it, uh, what happened. So you could discredit them right off the bat, because they didn't see it. You know, he played a true game. But you're playing with people's lives. And he know it, and everybody, the whole world know it, man. It's clear as night day. What are we going to do about it? I know what I would like to do about it, but hey, that's one war I probably can't win by myself. But if all of us get together, we could do something about it. But we got to get together, though. You, straight up. You, you had stated that uh, the police was using racial slurs. What, what exactly do you mean by that? Giving us a middle finger, calling me. They personally call me, nigga. Gave me the middle finger, said they glad my nephew did, laughing at me and everything else. I don't already got no altercation with one of the cops. And if you were to see these police officers again, you would be able to recognize them? Yes, I would. Yes, you, I would. Do you know any of their names and their barge numbers? No, I don't, because they would not give me that information okay. during that time. And can you just briefly uh, tell us what kind of young man was your nephew? He was real smart, he was real good with computers, and he wasn't no, he wasn't no gangbanger or no, the, he, was, he ain't even like to fight. He, I think he had like one fight his whole life. He was cool, like, you know how big people be around you and you be like, oh, I gotta watch this big dude. But you be around him, you like, ah, oh, he cool, you know? He got along with everybody. Everybody came in contact with him, ended up being his friend. So, that right there, I think I think what happened was Don Wilson come rolling down the street, probably ran over my nephew's foot, probably didn't. Say, get the fuck out the street. And they said something or something that he ain't like. He, oh, what? Busted at you, got back on him, what you say? Then he probably tried to open the door and it hit my nephew, because that's what Don Wilson said. While he trying to get out, the door hit him, bounced back on him, so now he mad. And like Dorian said, he had his arm out the car window around my nephew's neck. My nephew probably was like, damn, what, get off me. And he got his gun out. Like, you better get back or I'll shoot. And my nephew probably like, damn, hold up. And he shot him. And then my nephew running. So Dorian Wilson, you know you want, he want arm. If he, and but then when you talking about he turned around and reached down for his waistband like he had something. He would have shot you at the car if he had something. And then you claim he had time to wrestle with you while he wrestling with you at the car, take the cigarettes, turn around, hand them to Dorian Wilson, and still be wrestling with you or get back to wrestling with you. Now I know my, my nephew. My nephew was big, but he never did work out. I just wanted to play football. So that ground master ain't even kick in on him yet. And when them bullets hurt him, hit him, I know they hurt. Cause he ain't muscular, nothing to eat one of them. Even if you muscular, nine, 
Come on, man. Who finna turn around and get shot three times with a nine and come on and try to charge somebody, man? Like they said, he turned around saying, okay, okay, with his hands up. But Darren Wilson, in a rage, just because he felt like he didn't get the ultimate respect of being a police officer, and this black man had the audacity to try to do him like that, oh, I'm going to get him, I'm going to show him. And in a blind rage, he did what he did. That's it. That was the uncle of Mike Brown, testifying at the Black People's Grand Jury in St. Louis in 2015. Back to you, Mr. White. Um, there were also family members of other slain Africans, uh, one in particular, Kerry Ball Jr., who had been murdered by the state. But a lot of the evidence that was presented really uh, reflected neglect on the part of the state to act responsibly and in the best inf- interest of the African community at large. Um, as it relates to your question about uh, the legal instructions, absolutely. There was a practicing lawyer from the Bahamas. His name escapes me uh, at the at the moment that oversaw the proceedings and made sure that we were yeah, uh, Alex Morley, Alex. Ab- absolutely. Uh, Alex presided over the proceedings and he did a really good job to make sure that we had clear and concise instructions on how to uh, deliberate and how to proceed. Uh, the proceedings lasted. I, If I'm not mistaken, it was two and a half or two days in which the whole process took place. What about the deliberations? Can you explain to us how that process went and how long did it take? Yeah, so we, it was actually, you know, a process where honestly, uh, going into it, it's kind of like, okay, do we even need to really assemble? We already kind of had our mind made up on what we felt like personally the verdict should have been. However, uh, when it came time to deliberate, and I think we were given, it may have been about three hours to deliberate. It wasn't as easy of a process as we thought it would be going in. Um, there were some uh, misunderstandings uh, at times, I think, about clarity, about, you know, what our responsibility was in making a decision. But honestly, there were also uh, times where people weren't on the same page. So it, at times the process seemed a little bit tense, but it was definitely worthwhile going through together with the other jurors. Thanks for that, Robert, because Chairman O'Malley served as the prosecutor bring the charges against Darren Wilson. Let's hear a small excerpt from his closing arguments. This grand jury should go and deliberate, but you should not be intimidated by any assumption that this grand jury is impotent. You cannot, you cannot go and deliberate with the assumption that as opposed to applying the law to the facts, let's come up with something that somebody is going to appreciate and be more likely to say it was all right for us to do this. We cannot see our responsibility here with this grand jury as coming up with a solution that pleases someone. Our responsibility is to do what we saw a grand jury under the authority of St. Louis County and Robert McCullough. Under their authority, they refused to apply the law to the facts. To the facts. And what we are saying is that we are here today in part as a criticism of that process. Therefore, we cannot do less than that. We cannot do less 
than applying the law to the facts. The facts we believe, we've shown here, not only through direct evidence coming from forensic pathologists, not only from testimony from, that we saw a video from Doran Johnson and other witnesses who saw what happened. Not only that, but what we did was show that there is a tendency, a trend, a tradition here in this county for doing what happened to Mike Brown. That Darren Wilson was not acting as an outlaw. He was not acting as a rogue cop. He was doing what police do to black people in this county. We show that evidence right here. We've had people who sat at that witness stand, at this witness stand, and say they shot my son 21 times, and they still haven't told me anything that allows me to understand why they did it. We've had witnesses who've talked about other relatives being killed and brutalized in this county. So we're not talking about some aberration. We're saying that Darren Wilson did it. We're saying that not only did he do it, but the cover-up was enacted. First, by the grand jury process itself. By the fact that it even went to a grand jury, as opposed to Robert McCullough using the power to take it to a preliminary hearing. So that there could have been a debate, an examination of the evidence, cross-examination, the rest of it. He didn't do that. He took it instead to a grand jury, which is a prosecutor's tool. It is a tool of the prosecution that has led to statements by noted attorneys that a grand jury will indict a ham sandwich. So if a prosecutor wants an indictment, he will get an indictment. We also reminded that a grand jury is not a trial. It is not there for the purpose of examining all the evidence. It is for the purpose of establishing probable cause for an indictment. We didn't throw 5,000 pages of anything at you. I think that a real clear case was presented to you over the last day and a half that would justify you're coming back after deliberation with a, with a declaration that Down Wilson is guilty of first-degree murder. I also think that it is possible for you to consider the role played in this process by Bob McCullough. The arrogance, hypocrisy, the lying, all of which have happened in the face of what is assumed to be a black community without power to deliver consequences. Nobody does this to a community that they assume can deliver a consequence. It's based on the assumption that they can do it and there's nothing that you can do about it. This grand jury says that is a lie, that there is something that we can do about it. You have to, in my estimation, come back with the determination that Darren Wilson is guilty, or should be rather, indicted for first degree murder.
Also, the question is, well, should we do it? I mean, if Robert McCullough had determined that Darren Wilson should have been indicted, they had the guns, they had the authority, they had the ability to go and arrest him and throw him in jail, and they could do those things. And we look at ourselves, we don't have the guns. And from their perspective, when I say there, I'm talking about St. Louis County. I'm talking about the state. And I don't just mean the state of Missouri. I mean the state, the entire apparatus of coercion that is in control of the ruling class. They have all of those tools and weapons. So why should you do it? Why should you, why should you then say he should be indicted? Because we have shown you, on the one hand, the same basic evidence that was used by Robert McCullough to those 12 people in November. The same evidence, and they've come to a conclusion that exonerated, rewarded Darren Wilson for the murder of an 18-year-old black child. They've done that. You have an opportunity to do something different. If, in fact, they have the power to carry out their will, when I say they in this instance, I'm talking about St. Louis County. I'm talking about the whole state. I'm talking about those forces with the monopoly on violence. They have a monopoly on violence. That's what the state is. If they have the power to carry out their will, and they can make determinations that are designed to keep you oppressed. Can anybody doubt the determination that came from St. Louis County Grand Jury was designed to keep us oppressed, to keep the Michael Browns of our community dying without any kind of recourse? If they have the ability to do that, and we say that we have to move to correct that, and we use a grand jury to do this. This is a step in the process of capturing power in our own hands to carry out the mission. You can't carry out the mission if you don't start. You can't move to do anything to Darren Wilson and the rest of them if you don't start. You've got to start somewhere, and you've got to say we're taking control of this in our own hands as an oppressed community that we do find that Darren Wilson should be indicted for first-degree murder of Michael Brown on August 9th. That is the beginning. That is the recommendation that's coming from these prosecutors. Thank you very much. Robert, what was the verdict in the Black People's Grand Jury? I'm proud to announce that the verdict was that the jurors came back uh, conclusive that Darren Wilson was guilty of murder of Mike Brown. It was definitely, like I said, it was a, a process where it was, it was tense at times, but once we finally came to a conclusion, it was a unanimous conclusion and just being in the presence of uh, the decision being presented to all those in attendance and reaction. Uh, it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful experience uh, in light of everything that brought about uh, even the, the grand jury convening. Um, and it really just gave me hope and really optimism for the potential for us to have a legitimate process that uh, works contrary to the state's process 
where we can take power in our own hands and we can declare justice where justice is needed. Uhuru, uhuru. Now, you said that there was times when you guys had differences in uh, your opinions or your understanding of the evidence. How did y'all work through those differences as the grand jury? You know, quite honestly, it was uh, really just struggling with one another and really just being patient, trying to come to some core understandings um, that would allow us to move forward in our decision making process. It was uh, though, you know, there may have been disagreements at times. It never was uh, any type of personal attacks or disrespect or anything like that. But just really struggling to gain some clarity and come to uh, a form of consensus. And was the decision unanimous? Absolutely. It was an absolutely resounding, unanimous uh, decision to announce Darren Wilson, Wilson guilty of, and the state for that matter, guilty of the murder of Mike Brown. Now... From the research that I've done, Robert, I do hear that there was someone who was a holdout. What was some of the questions that the person who was holding out had? Yeah, and quite honestly, uh, it's, it's, it's been so long that I can't remember the specifics of uh, that particular person and their qualms or even what that centered around. More so, I just remember that there was some struggle and we did come to a place to where the decision was unanimous. Thanks for that, Robert. It sounds like the Black people's grand jury was a legitimate and just proceeding, lacking only state power to carry out the verdict. And that's what we need, real Black power. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today were defense attorney and Professor Jamal Kersey, and Black Power Community Activist Robert White. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast on wubp.podbean.com. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Onk, visit developmentforafrica.org. We'd like to thank our guests, Jamal Kersey and Robert White, for joining us today. We'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. Y'all can talk about all these viruses. That's good, but you can't forget the main one. It's plaguing us, bro. Down with the colonial virus. 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 Down.
why I'm poor. The colonial virus keeps me at war. The colonial virus, yo, that thing gotta go. We don't wanna have to deal with this virus no more. So we say, down with the colonial virus. 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 COVID-19, that's colonial virus. Ebola disease, that's colonial virus. HIV, that's colonial virus. Jovenel Moise, that's colonial virus. Domestic violence, that's colonial virus. Sexual violence, that's colonial virus. Horizontal violence, that's colonial virus. State violence, that's colonial virus. Gentrification, that's colonial virus. Mass incarceration, that's colonial virus. Deportation, that's colonial virus. The need for constant inebriation, y'all, that's colonial virus. Attacks on black women, that's colonial virus. Attacks on black men, that's colonial virus. Attacks on black children, that's colonial virus. We can't take no more of this colonial virus. We say down with the colonial virus.